Hello and welcome to another episode of the Privileged Man podcast. This is your space to explore the less spoken aspects of being a man in today's world. I'm your host, P. Hunt, inviting you on this journey of discovery and understanding. Today, we have another incredible guest, Benji Fry. An Eton and Oxford graduate, Benji started out his career after film school with work that was distributed by Giants, HBO and Paramount. He was also a nightlife entrepreneur and a BBC television presenter. This list of eclectic experiences eventually, however, led him to train as a psychotherapist and author his first of three books. But with all this success, Benji's story took a significant turn when he personally grappled with a breakdown as he neared 40. An experience that gave him a unique perspective on the state of mental health support, particularly for men. Using his business acumen, media skills, and clinical training, he founded Chiron Clinics, one of the only residential trauma treatment centers globally. While stepping back from the day-to-day of Chiron nowadays, Benji offers couples therapy, helping them heal their relationships with the knowledge and tools gained from his own experiences and professional training. If you want to hear a raw and unfiltered story of a man whose society would see as having everything, but felt like he had nothing, and his path back, then this is the episode for you. Please enjoy. Benji, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. If you could paint us a picture of day zero to where you are now and take us through a little bit of your your life story, that would be great. Day zero being the day that I emerged from my mother's womb. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's been a bit of an adventure. Um I was born in England, my mother's American, my father's English, and when I was a few months old, my mother was diagnosed with aplastic anemia, and she died when I was 11 months old. Um, And then I was kind of in the care of her friend for a while, for like a year, I lived with another family, and then my father remarried, and then eventually I came back to London and lived with my father and stepmother. And... Then kind of life was uh, reconstituted to simulate normality, which I suppose everyone thought was a good idea. Um, I went to boarding school at eight, and then I went to Eton at 13. And then I went to Oxford after that. So I was on this kind of golden trajectory of, if you like, academic success. Um which I agreed with. You know, I thought this was a good idea and everything should should be great and go swimmingly. Um, but underneath there was this kind of very troubled basement of my early childhood, which I now understand is quite significant. So I think in my 20s, I started to not really cope with being an adult. I experienced a lot of anxiety. I started having panic attacks. And also looking back, and I had a very short-term view of life. Um, I think one of the things I now understand about people who've had trauma in their life is that they they kind of remain locked into um, a threat response cycle, and threat response is very short-term. If you don't survive being chased by the lion, then what comes next doesn't really matter. So I think, you know, I didn't quite kind of train on from sort of teenage years to thinking about being an adult and uh, making long-term plans. I didn't really understand the kind of concept of anything other than just trying to survive and cope. Um, and I got married and had children. And I think as, you know, as most people know, life's challenges escalate. 
things don't get easier they get kind of pressures get harder and if you're not coping with the pressures when you're younger then they're not going to get any easier um and i ended up having a really serious nervous breakdown around 38 39 with my then wife pregnant with our fifth child in the midst of a global financial crash which had affected me very badly and so nothing was working i wasn't coping with anything and I think it just threw me back into um, this unfinished business from my very early years, which I didn't understand or know, and neither did seem did anyone else, either friends or professionals. Um, and so that was tough. Along the way, I'd done various jobs, um, various strange efforts at short-term careers, I suppose. I've been a serial entrepreneur. I um, been involved in nightclubs and restaurants, hotels, bars. I then got into psychotherapy, um, kind of as an almost as a hobby at the beginning. I ended up presenting a TV show for the BBC on BBC Three about therapy and spending and things. Um, so I've done various things, and then I had this total life crisis, really a very bad health crisis. And in the end, after about a year of feeling um, very, very unwell, unable to work, really unable to function, I went to a clinic in America where I discovered um, a new wave of psychotherapy related to trauma and particularly kind of the embodiment of trauma. So you might call these things body referencing psychotherapies. And I started to recover. I got treatment for the problem I actually had rather than something someone had made up and it worked so that was good i kind of stepped back from the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the abyss and was kind of reborn from this desert in arizona um i came back to england i was i suppose unemployed pretty much unemployable broke and yet responsible for a large number of humans and that was difficult um, and the only thing I could think of to do was to set up a clinic in the UK, which replicated the one I'd been at in America. So that's what I did. And I think being a serial entrepreneur was helpful then because I didn't have to like learn from scratch many things you do to set up a business. Um, I focused fairly rigidly on just copying what had worked for me and others when I'd been in America that I'd seen. It's a bit like you go traveling, I don't know, when you're young and you discover some weird beer in Thailand and think, oh, I could sell this in the Fulham Road, you know. Um, and that's what I did. And so that was 12 years ago, give or take a few months. An incredible story. Um, you mentioned your privileged upbringing in there. How much do you relate to your childhood? and the success of your life to date and the failures, if you can call them failures or lessons of, that have come to date, how much do you feel that that privilege that you had in your upbringing, albeit that your mother died very early, which is certainly not a privilege, um, how much do you feel that that impacted the way in which your life went and what ways did it set you up for yeah, success and failure? I think these are good questions. I mean, you raise the question, what is privilege? And certainly, uh, you know, having an intact nuclear family to a certain extent is a privilege that we don't constellate in our kind of very externally driven ideas of privilege. Um, but I think 
you know, more conventionally thinking about what privilege really means colloquially today. Uh, I was very lucky. My father was a successful businessman, so he was up and down, but broad strokes, we had money. And I think when I was a teenager, he was, he did very well. Um, so I had the privilege of having an excellent education. Um, and people have different views about boarding school, but regardless of that, I was at good schools. I mean, you know, if you wanted to be in a boarding school, as the best of the kind of boarding schools you could find. And I think, and I was bright. So the ability to have good teachers teaching someone who had the ability to learn, I think is a great privilege. Um, and you know, you can find that privilege in different ways all around the world, but the one thing that I've been able to, it's interesting because I kind of lost everything when I was uh, 40, but I never lost my education. And I guess also you never lose um, your connections, you know, your network, the people you've met, people you know. So that was a very privileged beginning, I think, from kind of eight to 18. To go to a school like Eton is obviously you know, all around the world. People fantasize that as a, as a privilege in their life. And then I went to Oxford, which is kind of like the uber privilege of any kind of educational experience. And of course, different in that it's not something you get because you've got the money to buy it. You have to also, you can certainly increase your chances, but uh, it's a, you know, it's a privilege on top of privilege. Mm. So I had all of these things going for me. And um, yet the problem is that the the privilege of if you like having a kind of intact nuclear family or coming from a, a home where things are easy um wasn't really there wasn't you know it was i mean i'm not saying i came from an awful home but that that there's a difference there that i don't know about you know i don't know what it's like to grow up with your um, mother intact and i think mental health is often not really understood as a privilege in a sense. So to be able to kind of function in your twenties and thirties, uh, in an intact mental health or physical health way is foundational. So it doesn't really matter how kind of rich or talented or potentially successful you are. If you can't function, you can't kind of execute on those talents. And the problem is, um, not to sound like I'm kind of complaining, but the problem is if you take a mismatch in these two things, like if you're fundamentally in a great sense of deficit, if you like, in your personal development as a child, but enormously privileged in the external world, it's almost um, exasperating the problem because I came out of university believing that the world was my oyster. And naturally, therefore, the bar is very high. Um, maybe, you know, maybe I exaggerate what others expected from me, but what I expected from myself was certainly excellence. The bar was really so high that I could only achieve my goals or fail in life. There wasn't really any headroom for things to go surprisingly well, if you like. <laughs> so the problem is I couldn't, I couldn't do that because of things I hadn't yet realized about. Um, you know, things that were invisible to me at the time. I and mean, I'd lived in a state of denial since the age of two. So when you think about privilege, um, I, I do think, it, it, you know, there's this horrible idea that, oh, you know, what's the phrase of poor little rich boy? 
right? Nobody really ever has any sympathy for someone who seems to have external privilege, and I completely understand why. Um, you know, people grow up struggling with everything that I struggled with um, emotionally, and uh, they have very difficult external circumstances. So it's very hard to to find sympathy or empathy often for people who um, struggle internally and yet externally have everything going for them. And yet, nonetheless, um, in an odd way, I think it can al almost be a barrier to the important, the more important part of life, which is the recovery of the self. I think most people who, who are very intact internally will find joy in life in many different external circumstances. Whereas people who have a massive internal deficit usually find that they're overambitious, try to overachieve, and whatever they achieve, they're always still miserable. Um, so in that sense, my relationship with privilege is quite kind of ambivalent, I think. Thank you. So many <laughs> great points in there. You talked about the personal development that a child goes through in terms of the education and that generally, in your experience, you were pretty good through your childhood in, in that education, but it was when you got to adulthood that things started to sort of fall apart. What came up for me, it could be the same for many men out there who have had childhoods which on paper look privileged, but actually when that personal development stops and it becomes about business or going into the system that you talked about in terms of, you know, here's the institution that you're going to go to, whether that's, you know, being a, in my case, a chartered surveyor or being an accountant or a lawyer or a banker or doing the things that you're programmed to do, the personal development side stops. And that's something that I feel that isn't necessarily recognized. It's sort of like, well, here's the education as kids, and that's what you're going to uh, because we're going to set you up for life. But then it's just like, well, you're 18 now, so good luck. And as a sort of collective consciousness, we're not really there yet in terms of a personal development course, which actually lasts through life. In the way that I understand it now, having subsequently trained to be a psychotherapist and then gone through therapy and crises and many different forms of intervention um, and being really confronted with myself. Um, there's an expression in some film I've forgotten, which is somebody says, well, you know, so-and-so was introduced to himself and it's usually through adversity. Adversity introduces a man to himself, something like that, um, which I think is very true. And I think by comparison, privilege can do the opposite. It can alienate one from oneself or allow me to avoid myself. You know, the more, the more hedonism is available and the fewer stresses that I have to solve myself rather than can just like outsource or deal with, the less I'm really going to learn about myself. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't really know how much personal development there is for men and boys at all. Anywhere. I think we have a fairly bland culture in the UK. But maybe in many kind of Northern European cultures and American culture, there's not a no I mean, America in some ways, people are much better about being able to have emotional conversations, even men. 
but then there's also a, a kind of amplification of a sort of macho culture in America as well. So I think it goes both ways. But in England, I think we, we kind of ricked us stuck in the middle. Can't really do anything. We can't be macho. We can't be emotional. We, can't, we just sort of carry on, you know, stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on. Um, and yes, I think your, you know, the thesis you put forward that there's something lost is obvious in a sense. Um, but yeah, not talked about. Well, I mean, this is, uh, it's a circular cultural problem, isn't it? We can't talk about not being able to talk about things. It's just the way <laughs> Brits are. And yet, look, here we are talking about it. So the world is moving around us and on without us or with us as we wish. Yeah. And I, I look at my children's generation, it's a different landscape. You know, they have a different vocabulary. They have different concepts which are um, prioritized, which used to be taboo in our time. I mean, I never as a child ever heard anyone use the expression mental health at all. Mm. And now you can say to someone, how are you? And they say, I'm having a bad mental health day. And then, you know, 18 or 17, I think, well, I don't remember ever hearing that when I was your age, but great. What does that mean for you? And what does it mean? I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but just to be able to say, uh, I'm not great, I'm suffering, when there's no external reason for suffering. So, you know, I think back in our day, someone would say, how are you? He said, well, not great, the business is not going well, or I just got fired, or my boss hates me, or my girlfriend dumped me, or, uh, you know, but you wouldn't be able to say, not great. I feel lonely and sad, and I'm worried that none of my friends really like me. <laughs> he just wouldn't ever say anything like that. So there's a difference. Yeah, it's interesting. I've lately, in the last couple of months, I've stopped really asking people how how are you. I've actually started asking how are you feeling because it just brings a completely different response. And for a lot of men, I find that's pretty confronting. It's sort of like eyes go everywhere, and the sort of like head starts to sort of shake a little bit, and it's just like oh, I feel okay i feel pretty good but it does and it's a heart-led response rather than a head-led response so just moving on a little bit the chiron clinics mm -hmm. did i say that right chiron chiron is i think the adopted pronunciation from the ancient greek although you can have it any way you like okay because <laughs> it's a dead language <laughs> <laughs> well tell us a little bit about the Chiron Clinic and and how it came about and I mean you've given us a little intro into that but it's not exactly like copying a beer um, <laughs> from Thailand I mean it's a it's a huge uptake and I'm also interested about the gap in which you, you talk about you know losing everything to actually setting up this incredibly successful clinic and how did you take yourself from uh, the floor to obviously a really successful business in seemingly quite a short period of time because um that's something that i know you know from personal experience as well it's just like how do we, how do we pick ourselves up off the ground here i mean we of course don't lose our education don't lose the contacts that's super helpful but what mentally also was sort of driving you to go you know what i'm i've hit the bottom it's now time to to get up and go well I mean, there are, there are different ways to be at the bottom. And I think I was there in every way before I had treatment, which is a pretty hopeless place to be. I mean, you can't really, I couldn't do anything. I can barely get out of bed. 
Um, so it's very hard to be incapacitated in, if you like, your internal constellation and sort of decimated in your external constellation. Um, the advantage of going for treatment, which worked, was I began to recover internally. As a, you know, as a, I had a long, painful tail on that recovery, but the um, the bulk of it was done in five months in Arizona, and then I guess you know begin five months in Arizona. Yeah, in a clinic in Arizona. Um, so it was you know pretty intense, pretty serious intervention in my life. Um, and then I continued to have ups and downs, but you know, two steps forward, one step back as I got back. And of course, then I began to recover, I suppose, a, a sense of drive and, you know, hope and, and, uh, and respond to my responsibilities and needs. I mean, I had five young children and we had nothing. We were just kind of hopelessly flailing around in a post-economic destruction landscape of the, uh, you know, the whole world. In 2009, was it 2010, 2011? Um, so it's kind of as much by necessity as anything else. I had to do something. And the only thing I really knew how to do was start businesses. And you need a good idea to start a business. And I'd encountered a good idea. Um, but uh, I think in many ways, there was an awful lot of luck involved. And... I mean, sometimes people say, oh, look at this thing you've done. And I honestly think that this was so needed that the project succeeded almost despite me, not because of me. Right. Because it was just, you know, there's this huge gap in the mental health landscape of provision of treatment, which, of course, I'd fallen into personally. So I was very passionate about trying to fill it. Um. But actually what happened is I wrote an article in the Times about my experience as a kind of um, complaint about mental health provisions in this country. And there's a throwaway line in it saying my dream is to set up a clinic to do something similar sometime. And someone contacted me out of the blue and said, I've rented a house to do a clinic in, but I don't have a clinic to do in a house. And I was like, well, I got an idea for a clinic, but I don't have a house. We actually started the clinic in a holiday let on a week by week rent um, someplace in, near Abingdon. And I mean, we started with nothing, with pretty much, you know, no full-time staff, no money, just me, an old car, some guy on a government work scheme who was driving the car around and an old laptop and four clients. And somehow through some sort of series of miracles, it persisted and survived. And we moved to a house in Oxford. Uh, and then we moved to a house outside of Oxford in the countryside, where we still are. Amazing. You say somehow it works. Mm. But having come out of five months of Arizona and been to the depth of yourself, like mm. right, in, right in there and done the inner work, it strikes me as though that that is a great place to be able to then start a clinic from. Because, I mean, obviously you've done the work and the embodiment. And I, I feel so much of the, I guess, the complaints and the way in which the mental and emotional health of people is dealt with is so prescriptive. It's so pharmaceutical. I mean, I've, I've got you know, this stat in front of me saying at the moment that 8.32 8 million patients 
received an antidepressant drug in 2021, 2022, and that's an increase for the sixth year in a row, which means 12% of adults in the, in England are medicated. Wow. So, I mean, in terms of that's the solution that we are kind of given in this country, and I guess in many Western countries as well. Yeah. But you'd actually cre- gone and gone further and deeper with yourself, right? And said, well, this isn't actually the, from what I understand, this isn't the solution for me. Well, it didn't work. I mean, I was still in terrible shape, even with antidepressants. Um, antidepressants are handed out reasonably easily. So there's a continuum of kinds of problems they're treating and severity of problems. Um, but look, I, obviously there was, there's something about having been a patient. I mean, I'd been a therapist and a patient before I started this clinic. So I was always fundamentally on the side of the patients, even though, you know, I become the institution, right? The clinic becomes the institution and then people complain about the clinic and about me and the way I used to complain about provision of services. And I understand that's totally normal. Um, but fundamentally, I was always on the side of the client, the patient, the resident, because that's the person that I, I identified with and resonated with. And so we would do things that other people wouldn't do or other places wouldn't do. Um, also, I was the only owner, so there was no one to keep happy but me. And I didn't really care what anyone thought about anything other than was it good for the person who needed treatment? Because I'd been that person who couldn't get the treatment I needed. Mm. <clears throat> so when we had um, you know, strange situations, we would, we would try and solve the problem and wouldn't always be a conventional way to solve a problem. Like we had a lady who... Um, needed treatment was breastfeeding. So we made arrangements for her to have a breastfeeding space and her child stayed in the village and the nanny and we just made it work. Where I think it would have been so much easier just to say, well, sorry, this doesn't fit with, I don't know, CQC regulations or nice guidelines or our insurers might be unhappy or our investors would think this was a risk or whatever. We just never had any of that bullshit to deal with. So would you say that it came from a place of I mean, for me, what I'm hearing and what I'm feeling is it comes from a place of real embodiment of the problem rather than the theoretical side of it. Yeah, I, you know, I'd lived this. I lived it as a patient and now I was living it as a therapist trying to provide it to residents, patients. Um, and there's a kind of natural authority in that, I think. I think that, you know, it's like anything. If you're a footballer and your manager has won the European Cup, five times or the world cup or something you're more likely to listen to them than if it's someone out of like football school uh and i think when i was running groups with clients in the clinic you know all sorts of things would happen but there's a there's a sort of grudging respect almost like a natural sense of authority that like i've been there and that this is how it is yeah i mean very often i get i get asked am i a qualified coach I go, no, but I'm a qualified, I'm qualified from the school of life, you know, having been through these issues and having been through many different levels of personal development in the last five years, but in the last seven years now, <laughs> time is moving on to actually get to a place where I feel comfortable to facilitate. In no way do I offer therapy or coaching, but I'm able to hold space for men. And that is a skill that isn't necessarily taught 
on a theoretical level. So that's you know it's it's in, it's interesting because we are really in a in a system where certificates and uh, letters after one's name count for an awful lot, but the most for me the most impactful development or coaching I've ever received has actually been from people and in within groups that don't necessarily put that at the top of their of their agenda. Sure. I mean, it's like a 12-step group, effectively. You're just in the hands of people who are on the same journey as you, but just left a little earlier. Mm. And no one's pretending they're any different. And I think you asked about the name Chiron, which is the Greek myth of the wounded healer. That's an acknowledgement of that. It's like, I'm no different to anyone that was in the clinic. I was in the clinic myself, you know, two years before, or three years before, or 10 years before. Um, we're just at a different stage on the journey. And the only, you know, the real qualification I have for helping others is that I needed help. And that's it. And that comes from being a qualified psychotherapist as well. I mean, that. Well, I was a qualified psychotherapist and it did me bugger all good because I ended up unable to help myself or to find anyone who could help me because the system that had qualified me did not understand the problem I was having and there was no access. And yet, like all of these systems, it's quite neurotic and, and concerned with itself. And so it's very hard for anyone to say, look, I don't know what's wrong with you, or we don't know enough yet, or, you know, maybe you need to look elsewhere. Um, everyone, the interesting thing with mental health, problems that everyone from like your taxi driver to your friend to the head of the priory has an opinion. They have a definitive opinion about what's wrong with you and what you need. Mm -hmm. um, and what I learned when I finally found out what was wrong with me and what I need is that they were all wrong. Literally all of them were wrong. And if I carried on believing that any of them were right, I'd have probably ended up dead. So it's quite dangerous to be, to not be able to acknowledge that um, mental health as a science is very young. Yeah. And if you went back to Harley Street in the 1700s and you said, I've got a stomach problem, you get the same syndrome. You get a bunch of people in suits charging you the equivalent of 400 pounds an hour telling you they knew exactly what was wrong with you and you should do this, that and the other. And you'd look at it now and you'd be like, well, that's just terrifyingly mad. Um, and I think in 500 years, I look back on mental health treatment now and just be horrified. So yeah, that's, that's where I was and that's where we were. And I think that it was, I mean, it was helpful that I'd, I'd recovered as a patient. It helped us with our client journeys, also helped with staff, um, in that I could say, look, this is how I want it to be because this is what worked for me. And there's a million different ways to do this. So just moving on a little bit, you're doing couples therapy in London. What's the number one th a complaint that you see with couple when couples come to you? Well, I think complaints come in all shapes and sizes, and there are many of them usually, and they're usually about each other, of course. Mm. Um, the the thing that I think is underlying most difficulties in most relationships is that uh, when people meet and they fall in love, they have a kind of biochemical wash of love hormones and love chemicals, which makes them feel safe and loved. And then they have a lot of fun because there's, you know, they have things that they enjoy doing together. And gradually those chemicals drift away and this could be over 18 months, 18 years. And what happens is people end up actually feeling not so safe and not so loved. 
and then they stop being able to have any fun because you know if you're running away from a lion you're not having any fun um and it tends to set in a vicious cycle of uh, recrimination which makes you feel less safe and le less loved and neurobiologically you need to feel safe to feel loved and you need to kind of feel loving to want to play the, these are the three things that people want to try to recover in relationship and they actually correlate quite well to deficits in childhood on an, and the negative correlations to things like abuse abandonment and um neglect so you know i could draw you a map where these things connect but basically you'll find that unless you can put back into people's lives a sense of when i come home to you or when i when i meet up with my girlfriend boyfriend husband partner wife that's better than being out in the world where things are more dangerous you know if the opposite of that is true you know if coming home is worse than not being home then people really struggle because mammals need their burrow they need a safe place to go back to to snuggle to sleep to feel warm and Stephen Porges calls intimacy immobilization with safety. It's like, you know, you can immobilize through terror, but what you want to do is immobilize because you feel so safe. Mm. And that's what snuggling and sleep is. Uh, so the biggest problem is that people make each other feel unsafe. That's super interesting. There's a lot of talk about toxic masculinity and the problems surrounding what females find uh, toxic about men when men would say well a lot of what I'm trying to do is to keep you safe and in order to keep you safe I have to act like a man can you allow me to be a man the men that you see do you find that there's a lot of uh, they feel as though they're being restricted by their wives and, and even vice versa that men are controlling of their female partners well, there's a concept that comes from Stephen Porter's work on the polyvagal theory, which is neuroception, which is like the body, the embodied version of perception. And the idea is that we have a neuroception of safety and of threat. And you might call these cues of danger or cues of safety. Um, there's not much you can do about it. The idea of neuroception is it's involuntary. So for whatever reason, something is a cue of safety or a cue of danger, it is. And the body is hardwired to follow a sequence of falling dominoes after that cue. You're not going to be able to intervene on it because you want to. You can't tell yourself you're doing the wrong thing. You can't tell yourself you're feeling wrong. It just doesn't work. Um, because if a lion came through that door, we'd react before we could talk about the lion. You know, the body is hardwired. So <clears throat> I think the important thing for men and women or, you know, men and men or women and women, anyone in any relationship is to be able to inventory what is the other's cues of safety and cues of danger and respect that and listen to it and hear it and then maybe adapt to it. Um, because otherwise, if you're telling someone what should make them feel safe, you're wasting your time. That good old, that good old fixer scenario. Uh, and I mean, the complexity will come if you say, well, so-and-so says that makes them feel safe, but when it happens, it doesn't. That's more nuanced and complicated, but the, the headline is you gotta, you gotta not assume that what makes you feel safe makes the other feel safe. Mm. You have to ask. Absolutely. Do not try and solve the solution to the situation, but just listen, which brings me on to your, your own journey. Do you mention about 
personal development and how well we talked about personal development earlier about how in adulthood that's not necessarily something that is taken on on a daily weekly monthly basis by by most men what is it that you have found post uh going into arizona and sort of in the last sort of 10 years of your life what have you found in which has helped you on your own mental health journey and keeping up with being a healthy man well i mean it's interesting being healthy and being a healthy man healthy man is a subset of being healthy and i think it's one that's neglected often both in the mental health canon and in just you know uk life um what I notice is that every now and then I've been to like thousands of therapy groups or led groups or been to 12 step meetings or what have you. And every now and then in a blue moon, um, you'd be in a group where no woman would come. You'd be accidentally in a group of men and it's a totally different vibe. It's so interesting. Um, you'd think we would behave the same, whether there's women in the room or not, but men don't. Um, that there's just a, there's a whole different engagement that happens for reasons I don't really put my finger on, but like men down the pub, you know, they'll just banter, they'll keep it light and it's all quite kind of quasi confrontational, but it's all humorous, which is fine and fun and everyone enjoys it. In a mixed group, you tend to find that there's a kind of homogeneity about the way everyone is speaking and, and being. Where I think the same the same restrictions that men subconsciously feel in society or at work is like I shouldn't be too this that or the other I've got to be more this that or the other, and then you just get men together in a group where it's a there's a purpose to it which is personal development or therapeutic. There's no buying pints at the bar. You're just sat around a table and a circle of chairs. There's no women in the room, and men start to take that kind of almost the, the machismo, which is directed into somewhat neurotic behavior, and they bring it into truth and to honesty. And uh, they open up in a different way. They're, they're not trying, it, it's, a, it's a different vibe, like there's no gallery to play to somehow. I think somehow most men feel like when there's a woman around, there's something expected of them, which is different to maybe their core truth. Right. just the legacy of our patriarchal society probably mm. um so i think a men's group is very powerful i found the privileged man to be very powerful in that respect i mean i've done everything been everywhere led groups been in groups and for me personally it's very impactful and it remains so you know every week it's um it's it's a way to confront myself i mentioned earlier is that you know adversity introduced a man to himself and that's kind of what happens when you're in a group of men, you stop oh, dissembling and that's it. You kind of hold the mirrors held up and you're introduced to yourself. Um, and it's good. It's good for me. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that's very, that's, that's very kind of you to say as well about the privileged man. Um, if you were to, if you were talking directly to a man who, um, which of course there are many, who was on the side of joining uh, the privileged man or a men's group? What would you What would you say to them? Well, it's interesting. Most people don't want to be in groups. Full stop. I mean, I've treated 
you know, through the clinic, we treat hundreds of people who will say, I just want to do the one-to-one -one therapy. I don't want to do the groups. Um, and what I used to say to them is, look, you can do that, but your chances of success are much higher if you do both. And that's what we've just seen empirically. So, you know, what do you want to do? You want to go well, or you want to hang out and do what's easy. I'd say the same about something like the privileged man or, you know, any men's group. It's like, of course, it's easier not to go to, not to do anything the sticks in your diary when you'd rather be answering your emails, not to do something as confrontational as being in a room with only men with no beer, which may be unusual and unfamiliar. And of course, it's easier just to be in a group and, and not speak and just listen, which I guess you can do in the privileged man or any group. Um, but you're, you know, something's going missed. It's, it's like exercise. You, know, you don't want to go to the gym. No one ever wants to go to the gym. I don't know. Some people probably do, but I never want to go to the gym. I never really want to take exercise. But when I do it, I feel better. And I think personal development is very similar. And for men to take the step of saying, okay, you know, I'm going to be in a space which is different to any, any other space I'm in in the rest of my week or the rest of my year and see what happens. Um, it's empowering. And look, you see in different cultures, like the cafe, and a lot of men will gather in a cafe in Egypt at sundown. And yes, there'll be a lot of bullshit about that. It's similar to us being down the pub, but it's a different social contract often. It's a different culture. And things are really talked about and people will be angry and sad and excited and, and blue and they'll pick each other up and they'll, they'll give each other feedback. And I think, one of the things that men do really well for men when they're allowed to is both support them and challenge them. So uh, it's different to someone saying down the pub, oh, you know, so-and-so, you're such a, you know, this, that, and the other. Just someone to say, look, I've kind of been there and I think you should do better, or I've been there and I know how much it hurts. Both those things can be said with love and compassion, mm -hmm. but not easily in a context that isn't, in our culture, a bit artificial, but it's very valuable. Yeah. I was just thinking like if it's a, a listener and listening into this conversation, be like, well, Pete, you hit your wall and you had your breakdown and Benji, well, you had your breakdown and spent months in Arizona. Well, I didn't really feel like that, but there's something missing in your opinion on men's groups just for people who have had serious mental health issues or are they for all men? Um, it's hard to see how someone couldn't get something out of it. Um, it kind of depends where you are and what you're open to. I mean, if you know, if you're totally close to the idea of change, then what's the point? <laughs> um, but if you're aware that there's things that you might like to be slightly better or different, or I think a lot of men are often a bit confused, a bit lost. There's a sense of, I don't really know if there's something wrong. I don't really know what to do to make anything right, but I don't really quite feel like this is all there is. Um, I think that's quite common. Yeah. And there's that quote from somewhere about most men living kind of lives of endless frustration, um, in a sort of downtrodden, weary way. That shouldn't, that shouldn't have to happen. You know, there's, there's joy and, and wonder in the smallest of things in life. Um, but sometimes allowing ourselves or allowing myself to be free and liberated to suck the marrow from those experiences 
can take a little bit of feedback and tweaking. Um, and it's interesting, you shall see that small changes, small consciously made adjustments can lead to long, large cumulative benefits over the long run. 100%. And it's hard to know what those small adjustments are without uh, a little bit of feedback, a little bit of collective wisdom. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Benji. And one uh, final question for you is, I get a lot of private messages, a lot of direct messages from wives or partners of men who are, what would you say briefly to those women who want to support their men? What's their best way of supporting their men into, into work? Well, I think any, anybody has to want to do what they're, they're choosing to do if it's in a personal growth area. Um, if you're a woman who's concerned about a man in your life and you think that a men's group might help him, then I think just say exactly that. You know, that's a kind thing to say. And if you can say it without an attack and a criticism, if you can say it in a way which, again, go back to cues of safety, you want to help people feel safe, help people feel loved. Ask yourself, what would make this person feel safe? What would make them feel loved? And if the answer is to suggest something that could support them without it being, uh, you know, flagellation, then that's, that's great. And, you know, maybe ask, how would you feel about that? What would that be like for you? What are you afraid of? What feels attractive about it? And work through that. Because for a lot of men, there'll be huge ambivalence to the idea of committing to something like, uh, you know, privileged man, which is normal. You know, there's a yearning for connection, but also a terror of intimacy. And often the women in our life can help us with that terror of intimacy. Um, but it has to be help, I think, rather than punishment, because men can often feel very belittled and criticized and, and ground down by not getting positive feedback from the other people in their life. And they feel like they failed somehow if someone suggests them they need help. Um, and yet it can come from a very loving, caring place. So I think it's just about making that, having that balance between offering feedback and stimulating sort of internal self-loathing in the man as he thinks, oh no, what have I done wrong now? Beautiful, beautifully put and beautifully timed to wrap up on that point, I think. Uh, just briefly, how could people find you if they wanted to hear more? Oh, if you want to find more about me, just go to benjaminfry.co.uk. Perfect. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Benji. That was awesome. Thanks, Pete. So thank you for tuning into the Privileged Man podcast. If you feel a resonance with our message and are keen to join a globally connected community of men committed to nurturing and elevating their mental wealth, I invite you to explore further. Visit our website, theprivilegedman.com, where you'll find enriching testimonials of men who have become a part of this empowering movement. Remember the journey to becoming a privileged man, a truly privileged man, one with elevated mental wealth, starts with your next action step. And that step, could be just a click away. Thank you again for your time, and I'm looking forward to having you with us in our next episode.